Good morning, everybody. Welcome. Ah, it's so good to see all your bright, shiny faces. Are you trying to pretend like it's not really like, uh, like you know, what, 10, 20 or something right now? <laughs> well, welcome to Daylight Savings. And I also want to give a welcome to all of you who are watching online, in the video, in the chapel, outside, and especially those who are here because you're not a follower of Jesus, but you're checking out this whole Jesus thing. And maybe you've got a friend or a family, co-worker, someone who's invited you to be here. And uh, I just want you to know how privileged we feel as a church to host you. In a world where religion can be such a divisive thing, our hope and prayer is that you feel loved, that you feel welcomed. And if this is your first time visiting us, make sure somebody who's been around treats you to a cup of coffee, all right? Come on. And not that stuff at the table. I mean, like in the cafe, you know, like a real drink, you know, hey, the table's good, but we are glad you're here. Welcome, everyone. Okay, so we are in the Gospel of Mark uh, since August. This passage, this chapter that we're in right now is a, is, a, is a shift. Right now, Mark is shifting gears for us, and as we go into chapter 14, we, this chapter is the longest chapter in the Gospel of Mark, 72 verses long. And the section that we're going to look at this morning is important for a couple reasons. One of them is chapter 14 has all the immediate triggering events that culminate in Jesus' crucifixion. In these verses, we see the first triggering event, which is Judas betraying Jesus. In today's section, it begins with the scheming of the religious leaders to look for an opportunity to kill Jesus. And there's a lot of symbolism here how the enemy works in our life. The enemy wants to tear us down, but he needs an open door. And he gets that open door through Judas, who at the end betrays him. And so we get these two bookends. The passage is bookended intentionally, by the scheming and the betrayal, and in the middle, shining like a light in the darkness, is this single act of extravagant devotion. Mark intentionally structures the passage this way, because in the midst of all the betrayal and all the darkness, there is an extravagant act of love that is breaking through. And in this moment, this woman is putting on display what we are about to see with Jesus' death. As we get closer to the cross, it's going to get darker. Ever heard the phrase, it's darkest before the dawn? It's going to get so dark. Everyone's going to abandon Jesus, and he's going to be on that cross. But that darkness is just the prelude to the greatest moment of brilliance and breakthrough in human history. And this woman, without even realizing it, is putting it on display. I want to get you into the context of this passage so we can really picture the moment. So let's go to the, the map real quick. Now, Jesus has been in Jerusalem, which is the pink area. In particular, he's been talking and teaching in the temple area. But so what we need to understand is at night, Jesus retires and goes somewhere to sleep. And that is, he goes past the Garden of Gethsemane up into the hills, immediately adjacent, overlooking the temple area, is the Mount of Olives. And on the Mount of Olives, there is the little town of Bethany. Now, Bethany is where a group of friends of his live, and he stays with those friends. And uh, we, we get a, a little bit of insight about where he's staying from John chapter 12. I want to fill in a few details for you. In John chapter 12, we find out three things. Number one, that in Mark, 
it's the home of Simon the leper, who was probably a leper healed, but it's meant to trigger us to remember the leper that was healed was this guy. And Simon the leper is likely the father of Lazarus and Mary and Martha. Okay, and we get that if you go to John 12, because John 12 doesn't mention Simon, but he mentions Simon or Lazarus, Mary and Martha. Do you remember Lazarus? He's the guy who's raised from the dead. Now, get this. The reason why that's cool is because we also get from John 12 that the woman, the anonymous woman who anoints Jesus, is likely Mary. Mary is the one earlier in Mark, right? Do you remember Martha's in the kitchen and she's getting all the food ready? Thank God for Martha. But Mary is out listening to the teaching, which was not a place for women. Women were not to be out there in the teaching area. They were to be back preparing the meal. But here's this woman out here in this space where normally it would be only men, and that would have been uh, disruptive to the men and maybe offensive. And that's partly the offense we see in this passage. And she's out there listening to Jesus, and Martha's like, tell her to come help me. And Jesus is like, no, she's chosen the better thing. It's that Mary. Lastly, you know how in Mark it says that there were some disciples who were upset about what was happening? Peter or Mark, you know, because Mark is Peter's memoirs, he's kind of discreet. Ah, some of the guys were upset about it. John's like, oh, I'll give you the dirt. I'll tell you exactly who was upset. And John's a little bit of a gossip for us. And he tells us it wasn't just a bunch of people. It was Judas. Judas was upset. Something about this moment was so offensive to Judas that it's like a trigger that results in the next step of action, which is to betray Jesus. Why? I wonder. But what we learn from John also is that Judas was in charge of the money bag, and he had been stealing money from the money bag. He was a thief. So here is Judas, a lover of money, stealing from the money bag, who then in this passage betrays Jesus for money. Here we go. And this passage intentionally sets up a contrast between Mary and Judas. And in this moment, what is so offensive to the disciples, the men in the room, Jesus is deeply touched. I want to read that to you again. It's right here in verse 6. This moment is unprecedented in all the Gospels. He never says anything like he says this right here. She has done a beautiful thing to me. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel, right here, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what, what? What she has done. Isn't that interesting? God, who reserves all honor and glory for himself here, is saying, oh no, she is going to be honored and glorified as well, because what she is doing is bringing honor and glory to me. When we live our lives in devotion to God's glory and honor, he turns around. He says, no, 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 no. Let me honor and glorify you. Isn't that wonderful about God? What she has done will also be told in memory of her. So this is recorded here because Jesus is so touched. He's like, whatever you can put in the story of my ministry, do not forget this moment. Record it. And they all do. So I want to talk about this moment. What was so beautiful about her act of devotion that Jesus wants us to stop and be in wonder of it and allow it to touch us the way it touched Jesus? I want to highlight three qualities for you that we can just sit and gaze on 
and I pray that it warms your heart. Number one, the first quality is the fragrance of her devotion. Number two, the extravagance of it, right? We'll talk about that. And then lastly, the prophetic nature of her act and what that says about our devotion to God. Let's start with the first, the fragrance, all right? In verse three, it says this, well, he was in Bethany reclining at the table in the home. You got that? Reclining at the table. Catch that imagery. Picture the scene. You're going to need it. He's at the table. Everyone's around him. Now, it would have been all these men because that was the culture. Okay, that's just how it was. A very, yes, patriarchal culture. All the men are hanging out there. And uh, a woman, it's the home of Simon the leper, and a woman came with an alabaster jar. So I want you to understand those cultural dynamics. I hope you appreciate both the audacity of the woman and her faith and how faith inspires audacious things sometimes and how Jesus responds to it. Now, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. The first thing I want us to notice is that her devotion is fragrant. She brings perfume. Naturally, she's a woman, right? She's got perfume. Let's go to the imagery. Come on, pull up the image of the alabaster. Here's an alabaster jar. And it's a little bit warm, but you can see here at the bottom, it has this really beautiful sunset color to it. Uh, alabaster itself, the material, the stone, is expensive, high quality. It has a translucence to it. You put light behind it, it kind of just glows with a warm yellow and orange. And the stone itself is so expensive, and it says something that if you're using something that expensive, what is in it is even more precious. This is made out of pure nard. Now, pure nard, it comes from the Himalayan mountains of India. Now, you cannot Google this stuff or Amazon this stuff back in those days, right? You can't just hit a button, boom, click, and there it is in two days. This is like you've got to go get this thing. It only grows in the mountains of the Himalayas. So it's, it's rare, it's precious. Think Chanel, think, I don't know, Dolce Gabbana. What's, what's a good perfume? Just think of that. And that's what we got here. Um, we'll get John 12, 3. 12, 3 is really sweet. John says this, the house was filled with the, the fragrance. I love this. If you want to do a fun exercise, if you want to really spice things up in your marriage, all right, huh? Read Song of Solomon chapter 1. If you want to get crazy, read it alone together. Come on now. <laughs> and uh, Song, or Song of Solomon chapter 1, verse 3, has a verse I want to read to you. But the whole chapter is filled with the imagery of this young woman expressing her love to her husband, the king. And the imagery of perfume and fragrance, those words are all throughout the chapter. I want to read to you one verse. See if you can see the, the really, this was written hundreds of years before this moment. You ready? Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 12, sorry. While the king was at his table, my perfume spread its fragrance. My beloved is to me like a sweet perfume. Can you see that there? It's crazy. It's like the exact scene. Do I think she had that in mind? No. Do I even think Mark had that illusion in mind? I don't. I think this moment is so powerful. She's so caught up in her love. She is just reflecting something that was prophesied hundreds of years prior to the moment. And what it tells us is this. 
the fragrance and the perfume. What touches Jesus so deeply? It's what it represents. It represents her love. And to put it simply, it's the love in her devotion that touches Jesus. Now, why is that important? Because our devotion can be motivated by a lot of other things. Are you with me? Yeah. Let me just read to you First uh, Corinthians 13.3. It says this, If I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, now that's a lot, I could boast about it, but if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. This ethic of the New Testament is profound. It's not just what we do, it's what motivates it that matters, and that has profound meaning for us as we understand this. See, it's not just the act in itself, it's what's driving the act. You can do something extravagant, but if it's not motivated by love, it doesn't mean anything to God. It's the love that is in it, which means it's not the size or the extravagance of the action in itself. It is what motivates it. Mother Teresa said this, it's not the size of the action, but it's the genuineness of the love that matters to God. And, and when I heard that quote, I was watching a video of Mother Teresa, and there she was cleaning bedposts of a dying leper. You see, a lot of things can motivate our devotion other than love. Let's go through the examples. Number one, sometimes we're motivated out of duty. An overbearing sense of expectation that we need to put on something because it's expected of us. It's the expectations of others. It's the expectation of ourself or what we think we have to do. It's duty. It's obligation. It is not love. Number two, it could be something like you could be motivated by praise or performance. It's about the love of other people seeing us do great things, right? We want to other people to see us doing great things. And sometimes it's about looking good in front of other people. It's about performance. It's not about love. It's about looking like we have it all together. Number three, it could be a martyr complex. It's not devotion out of love. It's a devotion out of nobody else is going to do it, so I'm going to have to do it. And you know that you're devoting yourself out of a martyr complex when you think, A, why is nobody else helping me and why am I here alone? And you're kind of bitter that other people aren't doing something alongside with you. And you kind of get a little bit judgy of other people who don't bring the devotion that you bring, the way that you bring it. People don't dress up for church the way that you dress up. Why are they not bringing their devotion to God the way I do? I go through the trouble of getting myself cleaned up. Here I am. There's all kinds of little funny ways that we are compelled to bring devotion to God, and we can find ourselves judging others for not bringing devotion the way, oh, we do. Or it, it, it just could be a heavy burden of... Um, doing it because nobody else is going to do it. And so we have to do it. That hyper-responsibility that drives us to do what we do, but it's not out of love. See, there's a lot of things that could motivate us, but when this woman brings this perfume, had she dabbed a bunch of it, it might have been motivated by something else, but it's the sheer 
recklessness and extravagance of it that shows its true nature because true love inspires extravagant expressions. Are you with me? Yeah. <laughs> and we're going to get to the extravagance here. But I, as we transition to the extravagance, well, actually, let's, let's, let me pause that story. Well, let's get to there. The extravagance. So one, it's her love. Number two, extravagance. Verse four, some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why waste this, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they, what? Man, they rebuked her harshly. What is going on here? Why are they having this kind of reaction? Well, Mark mentions that it's expensive. Now, are you with me? It's a little easy to get judgy on these disciples. Are you, don't you get it? Don't you just look at them and go, these guys are a bunch of losers. Really? Are these the disciples? You know, you just kind of feel like, wow, I would have not missed that moment. I would have been like, yeah, woman, bring it, you know? And it's easy to judge these guys. So let me just spell it out for you. Mark says that this is expensive perfume, but just exactly how expensive is it? Oh, he tells us right here, it's a year's wage. Now, how much do you make in a year? Can you imagine taking all that wage, all that salary, all of your, you know, um, all of your money for that year and just saving it up and then splurging it in one extravagant act like this? Okay, now commentators are kind of like, how did she come by something so valuable? So here's the theory. Based on what we know of Middle East culture and its history, likely it was an heirloom. Likely it was something that had been accrued over generations of her family. Something that was an inheritance. Maybe even a dowry for her wedding. And she takes this, which is akin to like your 401k. Your, your savings, the equity in your home. Are you, are you with me now? I mean, can you imagine like, hey, I want to bring an offering. I'm thinking about just throwing down our 401k. Can you imagine if your spouse just said, I'm, I'm throwing it down. I want to cash it in and just give it to this cause for God. You just be like, come again. I had a moment like this, right? Now you're with the disciples. Now you vibing them a little bit more. Are you kind of with them a little bit here? Okay, I'll give you an example of my own life. We were watching The Chosen season one. Have you seen The Chosen? All right, look, if you're skittish about cheesy Christian movies, this is not it. It's good. Watch it. And um, we came to the end of season one, and there was this little finan fin fundraising pitch at the end. And one of my kids goes, I want to make a donation. I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, I'm thinking like 20 bucks or something. Go for it. Go for it. And my kid goes, no, I want to give everything in my account. This is like hundreds of dollars that they've been saving up. And I've been kind of hoping they were saving it for something that would save me some money, you know? <laughs> and so I'm not exaggerating. When my kids said this, I kind of just choked up inside, and I was like, are you sure about that? <laughs> and rather than being like, go for it, I love that you want to do that, I was like, well, you might be getting a little fanatical there, a little crazy. <laughs> Maybe why not, yes, why not half? And I was talking my kid off the ledge here. <laughs> I'm embarrassed to admit it, but uh, here's the point. Um, see, Jesus' death is reckless and extravagant. The way that God demonstrated his love for you was not in giving you a holy book 
or giving you a fun hour at church on Sunday. Fun, right? No, no, all of that represents something even greater. God demonstrates his love for us by giving us his best. He gave us his son. And it wasn't just an hour of pain or difficulty. It was his very life that he poured out on the cross. And it was extravagant. And it cost Jesus everything to lay his life down for us. When you're touched by that kind of extravagant love, it makes you want to get a little crazy. Listen to my friends. When you are touched by the crazy love of God, it gets you a little crazy. It makes you want to do crazy things for God, and I want to encourage that. I want to affirm that. This ought to be a place where we just encourage and and support people in those moments when they want to give crazy love back to God and help them bring it to God, to be a community that inspires that in one another, not out of duty or obligation or because we're comparing ourselves. We'll talk about that in a minute, but because we're reminding each other of how extravagant we've been loved. When we are touched by the extravagant love of God, it inspires a life of extravagant love from us. That's how it works. This woman's not manufacturing something. She's not trying to get Jesus to love her. She's not doing it to buy a place at his right hand, like you remember James and John getting their mom? Do you remember that? James and John getting their mom to argue and on their behalf to have a place of honor in his kingdom? This woman is not doing it to earn something. She's doing it because she's been changed by something. I want to talk about this extravagant love for a minute. It reminds me of when I was um, in love and I went to a, a diamond store with two friends and to buy a special ring for a special somebody. And when I went to buy that ring and I looked at it and they said, hey, this is, it's going to be this much money, I was like, Perfect. And I literally reached into my pockets and I pulled out, I'm not joking, in dollars, in checks, and in coins, yes, coins, every single cent that I owned in my life. My account was empty and I literally took it in two panfuls and I put it on the glass counter at UTC, David and Sons, and I said, this is what I've got. I've got enough. And they go, whoa, 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 whoa. It's actually... uh, $1,800 plus tax. I'm like, tax? Who said anything about tax, man? This is all I've got. If I sold my car, I might get a dollar for it. This is everything, bro. <laughs> this is like everything. And they just looked at me stunned. And I'm not joking. The woman just looked at me. I go, I don't own anything else. This is everything. And she just looked at me. She said, okay, you wait here. And she came back out and she said, we're going to waive all the taxes. The ring is yours. But they had to swallow that cost. You see, when we're touched by extravagant in love, it makes us do crazy things. It makes us want to empty our pockets. Not because I'm trying to earn this woman's love because I have it and it's changed my life. And that's just a glimpse of God's love. I want to talk about the extravagant simplicity of her love for a minute. Let's go to the next slide. I want to use this phrase because her love is extravagant, but there's a simplicity to it. It's extravagant because it cost her something. 
And devotion to God is going to cost us something. Sometimes it's going to cost us our reputation among people we respect. Sometimes our devotion means allowing people to know about our faith that might think less of us so that the one person who is secretly wanting to know who Jesus is can find him through you. Sometimes it means allowing us the cost of an act of generosity that means we don't do something for ourselves or fulfill a plan. I remember one, no, I can't go into that story. I was, that's a private one between me and the Lord. But sometimes our devotion is going to cost us. And I want you to hear today, you are no fool when you give up, give up what you cannot keep only to rejoice and celebrate in what you can never lose and how much it pleases God when you give of your life. And maybe you've given of your life in devotion as a mother, as a father, and there are things that you have sacrificed and how pleasing it is to God and how it will be remembered when nobody else remembers it or knows it. He will remember it. It's simple. There's a simplicity to her act because, look at verse 8. Verse 8 captures the simplicity. She did what she could. I love that line that Jesus says, she did what she could. She didn't do what somebody else could have done. What could somebody else have done? She has perfume. She brings what she has. It's not about doing what others can do. It's not about comparing ourselves to others and going, oh my gosh, look what they do. Man, they're always with their hands in the air. You know, or oh my gosh, look at how much they give or look at how much time they devote. It's not about giving what others can give. It's about giving what we can give. And what God and his love in us, not so much asking of us, but the love of God in us is inspiring and compelling our life to offer. Are you with me? There's a huge difference, my friends. Think of the widow who brought her two coins and how Jesus can look at her and go, it's not about all the money that these guys are giving. It's good, fine, that's good. But she gave the most because... She gave all she had, even though compared to everybody else, it was the least. But because for her, it was all she had, she gave the most. And that's what touches the heart of God. Maybe you think to yourself, oh, I'm not an evangelist. I'm not out preaching the gospel to thousands. Or, oh, you know, you think of all the ways that you can't serve God and give your offering of devotion. It's about bringing what you can give. And not about comparing, but bringing what you have. And sometimes what we have is broken. Sometimes the best we have to bring to God are the broken things in our lives. I want to share a story with you about a woman who brought her offering to God, and she couldn't bring to God a perfect, intact family. Instead, she brought her broken and divorced family to God and how it touched his heart. This woman had gone through a divorce and lost her husband to alcoholism, and she, for a season, lost her faith. But along the way, Jesus' love searched her out and found her again and brought her home. And there was a time when one of our pastors was regularly talking to her saying, hey, I think there's a ministry that God wants to do through you. But she just couldn't imagine that God would want to use her in part because of her busyness of schedule and in part because of the brokenness of her life. But eventually, she said yes, and she brought her broken family, her broken heart to serve women, single mothers, who were trying to care for their children the way that she was. But it was her brokenness 
not that disqualified her, but that qualified her. It was her brokenness that she brought to Jesus that pleased him. And out of that broken heart, she went to court and fought for women in court. She fought with women to hold back the voices of suicide when they didn't think they could go any further. And she stood beside them late at night on the phone, ministering and encouraging them when they were in the dark, their dark hour. That's what we're talking about. That's an act of devotion. And that costs her something. It costs her something to have faith that even in her broken state, God could do something with her life. It was like this morning after the 845 service, a young man and his young bride and young mother of four wheeled his wife to the front. And she's fighting cancer and she's got her head wrapped from the chemo, but she is bringing her faith for healing and asking for prayer. And we're huddled around this woman as she offers her very life to God in faith. And I'm just there. We're, everyone's just weeping and we're praying for her. But sometimes it's not the offering. It's the offering of faith in our brokenness that God is asking us to bring. And like Judas, some of us hold it back. And we hold it back because we, think we have nothing to bring. And Jesus is saying, bring me what you got. You go, all you go, like God, Lord, is sin and brokenness and regret and shame. And Jesus is like, then bring that. Yeah. And that woman gets up there and everyone's ridiculing her. And there are voices of ridicule and judgment that hang over our life that say, what you have to bring is not enough. And Jesus is saying, bring me what you got. You bring me what you have because it is going to be more than enough. Because my love will multiply it. It's extravagant because she brought all she had. Lastly, it's prophetic. It is fragrant of love. Extravagant because it's all she's got. And then thirdly, it's prophetic. Verse 4, she poured... Yes, I'm leaving my pockets out for a reason, by the way. I know, I know. You're looking at them. I, I know. It's symbolic, man. Go with it, go with it, go with it. Verse 4, she poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel was preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told. Get this in memory of her. Without realizing it, her devotion becomes a revelation of Jesus' crucifixion. Let me show you. Let's go to verse 3. In verse 3, Mark uses very specific language in verse 3. Here it comes. It's going to just... It's going to appear up there. Ah, look at that. Right there. She, what? She, the jar and perfume on his head. And it's those same Greek words, those same words later in chapter 14. We'll see. Verse 21, Jesus, the bread, this is my body. And in verse 24, he says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is out for many. You see, in this moment, when she's taking the insults and the rebuke, she is reenacting without even realizing it. She's demonstrating, putting on display the beauty of what Jesus is about to do because as he goes to the cross, he will be insulted and ridiculed and mocked for his reckless gesture of love for you and I. When he goes to the cross, his body will be broken and his blood will not be dripped out, trickled out, but his love will be poured out, meaning he's going to give everything he's got. She broke that jar because there's no going back. She's not giving a little, 
normally with gas, you trickle it. No, but in this moment, she's just dumping out. She's giving everything she has because that is what God did for you on the cross. It's ironic because in this moment, the disciples are scandalized by the waste of perfume. And Jesus is like, if you can't handle the waste of perfume, how are you going to handle my life wasted for you on the cross out of love? Because there's always a feeling of waste with love because it's extravagant. And it goes against all of the cool, calculated, efficient voices of moderation in our life that want to tell us, play it safe, hedge your bets, don't lay it all out. There's a recklessness to God's love that inspires in us a recklessness. Do you remember those friends that dug through the roof to get their paralyzed friend to Jesus? How about the the Syrophoenician woman who, despite all of Jesus's off-putting, pushed through to the prize for her daughter to be healed, or the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years and said, if I can just get to Jesus, and through the crowd, she found the love of God in Jesus. This moment, it represents God broken and bleeding on the cross out of love for you. And you don't really see it, but in this passage, but this woman's life has been touched by an extravagant love. Have you? For some of us, we've never been touched by this love. You don't know the love of God for you. You've heard about it, but you've never personally been bathed in it, anointed in it, where the fragrance of his love changes your life and goes with you, and you can't even help it. It just kind of rises up from your life, and other people are like, what's up with you? Jesus this morning invites us to bring our brokenness to him because it's the place of our brokenness that is the open door in your life to his love. Because see, we got our armor up, guys. But it's the place where we're broken. That's the opening in our thick, gorgeous, well-manicured, well-perfumed, perfect life. It's those places of brokenness that is the opening of God's love into your life. And it's bringing him our brokenness that allows us to encounter his reckless, undeserved, unearned love. It could be an addiction, an unhealed hurt. It could be shame, broken relationship, or broken dreams. I want to show you a clip before we wrap up. And there's a clip from Way Miz. Maybe you know the scene. Jean Valjean is a broken man. He's, been, he's gotten out of prison. He's destitute. And he finds himself at the feet of a priest who has opened the doors of his home to show him hospitality, to show him kindness, brings him in at the cold in the dark, feeds him. And Jean Valjean can't make sense of this kind of reckless, extravagant love and decides it's a dog-eat-dog world and decides he needs to take advantage of the moment and seize the moment for himself, and he begins to steal some things and to sneak out the back door. Let's watch this clip.
Monsignor. We have your silver. We caught this man red-handed. You had the nerve to say you gave him this. That is right. But my friend, you left so early. Surely something slipped your mind. You forgot. I gave these also. Would you leave the best behind? Monsieur, release him. This man has spoken true. I commend you for your duty. Now God's blessing go with you. But remember this, my brother. Seeing this some higher plan, you must use this precious silver to become an honest man. By the witness of the martyrs, by the passion and the blood, God has raised you out of darkness. I have saved your soul for
that scene because it just so beautifully captures the reckless love of God. Now that priest invites this criminal into his home and then the criminal takes advantage of him, runs off with it all. And there's a parable for us in that. God has given us life, breath, home, body, friends. He's given us clothes on our body. He's given us life. He's given us what we could never deserve. You didn't choose to be born. You were given the gift of life by the grace of God. And we can take that gift and just run off with it for ourselves. But that man is captured and he's brought back. And I just love that moment where he's like, oh, you didn't take enough. And we just are so afraid sometimes of giving our life to God because he's going to ask us to give up our inheritance. He's going to ask us to give up our alabaster jars. What is God going to ask me to give up? And we're so focused on what we're afraid he's going to ask us to give. Am I going to have to give up this pleasure, this freedom, this area of my life to him? And it's like we've got it all backwards. When you are touched by the love of God, changes you. A love that you could never earn or deserve or be worthy of. It's a love that you can never be worthy of and it's a love you can never, ever diminish in God's heart for you. You can't earn it and you can't lose it because it's not about you, it's about Him and his commitment to love you with everything that is in him and to look for every way he can to open your life to him. And so he shows his love by the gift of life, the blessing of rain, the love of a friend. But if that isn't gonna work, then he allows the low moments in our life to bring us to our knees so that we can then experience his love in his mercy in his forgiveness when you have made a mess of your life. Maybe it's that moment when you are broken at the end of yourself. Maybe then when you come to God and you don't find scorn and judgment, and I told you so, but you find a gracious father who says, I allowed that into your life to humble you, to bring you back so I could show you I have even more than you ever even dared to take for me to begin with. Your little vision for your life can't compare to the one I have for you. Let me show you what I got. When you encounter that love through Jesus and his death for you, it just changes everything. It causes you to do crazy things. 30 years ago, I stood up in a room of people just like this, high school kid, just feeling lost and confused about where my life was headed and kind of just burned out on the party scene and all the gossip and backbiting and the one-upping everyone, the alpha thing that everybody was trying to do, who's cooler, who's better. I just got sick of it. I said, God, is there anything better? And I was sitting there and when the preacher gave the invitation to receive God's love and allow God's love to redefine our life and to give us purpose. I wanted that. 
And I just did a crazy thing. I raised my hand and I walked forward and in front of thousands of people gave my life to Christ. That was all I had. I didn't have anything else to give God. I was a high school kid. I didn't have any money. I didn't have a car. I had nothing, but I had that. And you know what? In the end, that's what God wants. He wants you. He wants your heart. He doesn't want your money or your perfume or whatever else you're afraid that he might ask. He wants you. He wants your heart. He wants all of you because he has given all of himself. And that's what this represents. It represents that somebody gave me something precious and behind it is something even more precious. And behind the cross is this this a symbol of God giving himself for you. And he is out the altar and he is waiting for you. What's holding you back from just giving your life to him? For some of us, we've never done it. For others, you've lost touch with that love. Being here is about duty. It is about a show. It's a martyr complex. You're the one holding down the fort for your family. You're the one who's holding it down. Your spouse isn't here. Your kids aren't here. Your parents aren't here. You're here. And you're just holding it down all by yourself. God wants to revolutionize your life. He wants to renew his love in your heart. If you need to do that for the first time, open your life to his love through his son Jesus or renew it. I want to invite you to raise your hand. And like this woman, you are making a public stand. Jesus, I want your love in my life. I need it renewed in my life. I'm willing to admit I need a renewing of your love in me. I need, I want to know it for the first time. If that's you, I want to invite you to do a very public thing. Just put your hand up in the air right now. And we're going to pray for you and just ask God through that act of faith to open your life to his love for you. I see you. There may be, I see you guys in the back. There may be a brokenness in your life. I see you, my friend. I see you. That has distracted you and overshadowed God's love. And this morning, he's saying, bring me that brokenness. I see you. I see you, brother. I see you. Bring me that brokenness and let me renew it. Let me, let the brokenness be the open door to your heart with God's love. Anybody here who wants that, raise your hand as well and we'll pray for you. Okay, I see you both. I see you. I see you, brother, on the right. I see you in the back. I see you guys. I see you. I see you, brother, right there, straight, dead in back. I see you. I see you, girl. I see you. All right, if you raise your hand, let's pray. Maybe just, I'm going to invite you to say a few things out loud and let the fragrance of your offering fill this room. You ready? Say it out loud with me. Jesus, I receive your love. On the cross, your body was broken for me. Your blood was shed for me so that I could be forgiven and that I could forgive others. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and renew your love in my life. Fill me for the first time with your extravagant love. Let it be, let it be the definition of my life, the anchor of my life, the motivating force in all I do. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Let's give a round of applause to these guys. Come on. Yeah, so good. If you raise your hand, do one last thing for me. Before you, well, hold on. If you raise your hand, do one last thing. Would you come down and let us pray for you? I just don't want this to be an emotional moment. It doesn't matter why you raise your hand. Just come on down as an act of going public with that moment of prayer. Let it grow and take root. Um, and if your friend or loved one or family is to raise their hand, come down with them. Make it a community affair. We don't do this alone, but we follow Jesus together in relationship. So come down with those loved ones, with those friends, and let us pray for you. We've got a team up here ready for you. Come down. God bless you guys. I'll, I'll see you outside with my lollipops.